listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. So we're doing something special today. If you're new, you're going to be like super confused. We normally do have a sermon, like an actual sermon preached around now. Um, But for the last two months or so, um, our church has been in a series about the Beatitudes, which are a series of blessings um, Jesus issues in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, each week for the last month or so, um, you all have been turning in questions on little index cards um, after the service. And we're going to be addressing some of those questions today. So Luann is up here with me. She's going to be asking me the questions and maybe providing some banter. We'll see how this goes. This is kind of an experiment. Um, <clears throat> she'll also be keeping an eye on the clock because we got a lot of questions. So we could be here for a while. No, but, she um, won't. <clears throat> clock. Clock, timekeeper? Robin, Robin will be, it's okay, on awesome. the computer. Robin will be keeping an okay. eye on the clock because I could talk with Dan about this forever. That's probably true. We can do 20 minutes. 11.30. Is that about good? Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah, 11.30. There you go. There you go. Um, And I should also say, so if your question doesn't get addressed today, because I doubt we'll make it through all of them, um, you'll want to check our website around the middle of the week, because one thing I'm planning to do is any questions we don't get to, I'm going to record a, basically like a second um, audio version of answering these questions. So there'll be two sermons this week on our website instead of just one. Does that make sense? To me, it, it does. Come out yes, it does. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, I think it's it would be good for you to know that we got you got what 35, mm. 35 questions. Something like that. I, I myself did thirty four. So whoever <laughs> did the other one, thank you ever so much. Yeah. Here we're going with the first question, which does happen to be my question, and it's not a really brilliant or deep question. But it's important. Of course, it's important, but what does the word beatitude mean? Okay, so I talked about this a little bit in the very first sermon. What does the word beatitude mean? This is, this is an is easy one to answer. Uh, beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessing, which is beatus. So it's just an English version of the Latin word for blessing. That's why they call these blessings the beatitudes. It's a fancy way to say the blessings. We accept that answer. Thank you. <clears throat> Next question, what is the correlation between the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes? Can we consider the Beatitudes a list of kinder, gentler commandments, or are these Beatitudes a primer for the disciples and what they should anticipate for believing? That's a good question, and that's a long one. I might actually have to look to make sure I cover everything. No, you're good, you're good, you can leave it there. I can see it. Um, so yeah, um, I talked about this a little bit at um, a few points in the, in the sermon series. So this is a really good question. The correlation between the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. So Jesus is very intentionally channeling Moses when he gives the Beatitudes, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Moses famously led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. He climbed to the top of the mountain, and then he delivered the law. Jesus takes his disciples to a mountain, He climbs up the mountain, and then he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is his interpretation, his take on the law. And the law of Moses starts with Ten Commandments. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, these eight or nine, depending on how you count them, statements of blessing. 
Um, I've seen some scholars and some commentators really try to tease out a bunch of connections. I've seen people try to link each uh, beatitude to one of the Ten Commandments. I've seen really complicated explanations for why there are only eight uh, beatitudes and Ten Commandments. I think that can get into some like overly speculative, kind of silly almost areas. Um, I think the, the main parallel is that image though. Jesus is trying to do something new. He's hearkening back to Moses. Just as Moses gave the law and the Ten Commandments at the start of Israel's story, this is the start of a new story. Um, this, is, this is the start of what becomes the church, Jesus' disciples. Um, so that's really the parallel that I would focus on here. Um, as far as the Beatitudes being a list of kinder, gentler commandments, I would stand up for the Ten Commandments a little bit because, you know, honor your father and mother, uh, don't steal, don't kill people. Those are pretty gentle, good laws, I would say. Um, so I don't know about the Beatitudes being kinder and gentler. Um, one big distinction I'd make, though, the Beatitudes aren't commands. Um, when you look at them, they are not being issued as, as commands. Jesus is not saying, you all need to be poor in spirit. You all need to mourn. Jesus is making announcements. That's how the Beatitudes are structured. They are announcements. They're revealing something. They're meant to shock us and reorient us in our understanding of who God blesses. Um, so that would be an important difference I would tease out. Does that all, did I cover that whole question? In my opinion, yes. Okay. The rest of you, what do you think? Is that a good answer? Yeah. Is, okay, so fun. how about we do this? If it's a good answer, we'll do an amen. If it has to go to the website, okay. too bad for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Next question, related to blessed are those who mourn. When do you think white Americans lost the ability to mourn, hmm. or was it lost in Europe before we even got to America? Okay, so this goes back, this is going back way far. I need to think back to the like, second or third sermon in this series. So we talked about uh, Jesus' blessing on those who mourn, says that they will be comforted. And we talked about how in our culture, we don't really know how to mourn. Other cultures and throughout history have had all these sorts of rituals connected to mourning. Um, but in our culture, people who mourn are, are really kind of pushed to the margins in some, in some big and, and damaging ways, I'd say. Um, in terms of where that comes from, though, I think it's kind of both. So the question asks, was it lost in Europe? Um, or like, is it, is it something more recent? I think you could take it back to the Enlightenment. If you've ever heard of the Enlightenment, that's kind of what has really shaped the way people view the world today. Uh, it was kind of like after the Renaissance, you had the Enlightenment. And it was a turn to like, make everything super rational. Like every challenge we encounter, every issue that comes up, it's a rational issue. We, we solve problems by thinking about them, which doesn't really leave much room for emotions, for feelings. And if you try to rationalize grief, you're gonna drive yourself insane. Um, so just from that alone, um, we, we tend, we're not equipped to mourn in some of the ways that previous older cultures and other cultures do. Um, we're also super individualistic in our culture, and mourning is something that is done by a community. Um, you come around people who mourn and who grieve. That's something that this church does very well, I'm finding, uh, which is amazing. Um, but in a culture where everything is kind of tailored toward the individual, um, that is going to make it tougher for us to mourn, I think. 
Um, you know, our, our culture is all about selling and buying things. What do you sell to the person who's mourning? You know, I don't, I don't know if that makes well, sense. But oh, I have to give that one a you big amen. How about yeah. Yeah. amen? Well, thank okay. you. Next question. I understand the importance of being merciful, but how should we handle those who take advantage of our mercy and compassion? When is enough enough? That's a really good question. I want to say amen to that question, actually. This is good. No, this is good. This was a question from my brother Bob. Yeah, I recognize true. true. Yeah. So that's a really good question. When is enough enough? What do we do about people who take advantage of our mercy? You probably even talk about peacemaking in this way. Blessed are the peacemakers. People are going to take advantage of that. I think the first thing I'd have to say is that there is danger in actually applying these teachings from Jesus. If you're going to live in a merciful way, if you're going to embrace nonviolence, which I don't necessarily think all Christians are necessarily called to nonviolence. You could have a debate there. Um, but if you're going to embrace some of these teachings, there are people who are going to take advantage of you. And I think it's important to realize that. Because one, you realize that you're taking a risk. But two, I think you can try to take some precautions and try to be aware of when people are taking advantage of you and try to work proactively to not be taken advantage of. Um, Jesus, so Jesus teaches his disciples to be merciful, but he also teaches them to be wise. Um, there's a I can't remember which gospel it's in, I want to say Matthew, but he says, be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. He kind of holds those things together. Jesus doesn't want us to get walked on. Jesus doesn't want us to be fools. Um, and I think the way you could really hold these two together um, would be to acknowledge the full humanity in everyone you encounter. Because that humanity has both good sides and bad sides. If you have an enemy and you acknowledge their humanity, you're going to acknowledge that they have inherent dignity. They have inherent worth. They're created in God's image. God loves them. You're called to love them like God loves them. At the same time, they're human. They're sinful. They might be someone who's willing to take advantage of you or hurt you, and you need to protect yourself from that. So I think if we really acknowledge that, that people are human, don't dehumanize people, but also don't be foolishly optimistic, I think we can be merciful without being taken too advantage of. I'm not sure. This is a new mic cord, so it could be mine. Oh, back up. But, yeah, I think that covers. Does that? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm going to try to repeat that to my brother with great excitement. Well, this will be recorded, so you can listen online. There you go. It's perfect. All right. Okay, now we have several questions about the pure in heart. So I'm kind of going to go through them. Okay. And pick out the high points. Okay. How are we doing with time? Oh, sweet. excellent. This is good. Okay. So, how can we ever know if we are pure in heart or even close? Is it ever possible to feel pure in heart? Pure in heart uh, seems unattainable. What are the Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek transitions? translations of pure, do they imply the same sense of perfection as the English word pure? Uh, so the idea of outward purity is a farce. Um, I can give money to the church, but act or feel like it's a chore. Um, 
Do we want to do the other ones first? And then, yeah, Because that back. one's kind of a long, complex one. Let's do some of these pure in heart ones. Okay. Like, how can I know if I'm pure of heart pure or even close? Pure of heart close? or even closer. Is there some break in Aramaic? <laughs> yeah. So I can do the, the language ones easier, actually. So um, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And I actually know the Greek word for for pure, because I have it tattooed on my arm right here. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's the, you, you know, this is, this is what you can only get here at Brockport First Baptist. So the Greek word for pure is katharos. Um, it's where we get the word cauterize from, I've heard. So katharize, oh. katharize, katharos. Um, uh-huh. Like to, to burn. burn yeah. So it's got the idea of, um, I believe it comes from like metallurgy, and it's uh, about removing impurities from metal. That's kind of like the origins of that word. So pure is actually a pretty good translation. Clean would also be um, a way to put it. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, purity is also going to bring the sense of holiness, which is about being set apart, um, being like ceremonially pure, ceremonially clean. So like creating me a clean heart, O oh God. Um, I don't know the Hebrew word for pure, though, but um, that's okay because it's the New Testament, so it's Greek. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, and yeah, I would say that the English word pure is a pretty good translation for that, um, as far as that goes. One big difference, though, is that I think we have a lot more baggage in our culture around the word pure and around notions of purity, especially in the church, um, especially when it comes to sex, um, than maybe the, um, like at the, at the time of Jesus. Um, so, so like in that sense, like if you, I, in that sermon I talked a little bit about purity culture and about all the shame that comes along, especially like when I was a teenager growing up in church. Um, purity basically meant not having sex. That was, that was purity, which is a pretty narrow view of purity. Um, and that's a view of purity that kind of, if you mess up that one thing, well, now I'm broken, now I'm impure, now there's no way I can get clean. Um, that would not have been an issue in that narrow sense back then. Um, purity was a much bigger idea, and it also helped that most people back then got married when they were like 13 or 14, so, you know, um, that is very unique to our culture, kind of the hang-up with purity and some of the baggage we have there. Other than that, it's a pretty good translation, I would say. Don't know if that's going to get amens. Oh, there were other questions there, weren't there? Yes, because yeah. now I'm confused. Okay. Yeah. What are you confused about? This, this uh, well, be good. because, because... Yeah. I get the clean part, so really clean of heart and pure of heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we do tend to, I think we tend to um, equate purity with, with yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, wrong, the wrong kind of pure. Okay, so the idea of outward purity is a farce, is it is not pure within, which makes sense. You must have said that, right? It must have been in the nursery that day. Yeah, okay. For example, I can give money to the church, but act or feel like it's a chore as opposed to giving out of the goodness of my heart. So turning things up to 11 on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm figuring, is the idea of the church that is constructing buildings, building statues, even dubbing someone pope, considered outward purity? What is the intent of these things? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I like the turn that takes at the end. So this is kind of getting at like, what's the purpose of the church in in a sense? That's how I kind of read that. Like, is 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 this building and this community is this all just about performing something? Are we just here focusing on our own outward purity? 
Um, my answer would be I, I hope not, but I think that's always a danger that we need to be aware of. Um, we tend to think that this was an issue like in Jesus' time with like the Jewish leaders, and it's something we don't need to worry about today because we have grace. Well, I, th I think it's still an issue today. There's grace in Judaism. There is grace at Jesus' time. And I think we can still fall into legalism and performative religion and uh, emphasis on outward appearance over inward purity as well today. It's definitely a danger. Um, to really get at, I mean, at least how I understand how I'm kind of taking this question, um, kind of what are we doing here? What's the purpose of the church? As I understand it, this community, the church, both, both thinking individually, us here, Brockport First Baptist, and the church globally, our real purpose for existence is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. That's how I understand it. Um, in Christ, God is remaking this world. God is redeeming this world. He's, uh, God is setting broken things right. He's putting the world back together. And I think we're called to be part of that. Um, it starts maybe between the individual and God, but then it flows into how we live together as a church and then how we um, engage with the world. Um, you know, and so that blessing, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, where do we see God at work in our world? Um, do we see the church at work uh, doing Christ's work in the world? If the answer to that is yes, then I think we, we're, we might be good on the whole outward, inward purity question. But when the answer to that is no, when we become super turned in on ourselves and completely inward focused, and we're worried more about, you know, how are we going to pay for X, Y, and Z <laughs> versus, um, you know, what are we actually doing out in the world? That, that's, that's a time I would maybe say we need to look at our hearts and be very careful about what we're, what we're doing, how we're oriented. Is that? That's a hard question. It's a hard question. Would you like me to answer it for you? <laughs> yeah, you can answer it for me if you've got a better... I'm just kidding. Yeah. No. But yeah. I do think yeah. that there's a difference between the church and building statues, mm. and the intent of the church is, as you say, but we need to be careful about mm. the intent of man, mm. right? Because I don't, I love stained glass windows, but mm. I've not read about them in the Bible. It's true. Right, there's yeah. none of that in the Bible. Yeah. So the church, in, and this is a small example, but as you know, Obviously, some churches are very concerned with outward appearance, which would mm -hmm. make you wonder yeah. about the money being spent mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, on yeah. certain things and not other things. I would say, too, we need to realize this is important as a church. Anything can become an idol. Even a good thing can become yeah. an idol. Yeah. Um, so like a classic one from our culture would be money. Money can do amazing things. You can bless people with money. You can build things with money. But when money becomes an idol, you're in trouble. Um, same deal with like something like an organ. You know, I love organ music. I grew up in a church that sang hymns. Um, it's, a, it's a way to worship God, but there are churches that have been divided and split apart over a fight about an organ or about stained glass or about um, carpeting. Um, so it's always, there's always a danger there that right. something we love that's there for a good reason, that's good to serve the purposes of God, um, can become an idol and can be destructive. Amen. Amen. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers. If we are to be peacemakers, how does one vent their anger? Well, 
That's a good, I keep saying that's a good question, don't I? Yeah, yes, you have. Yeah. Um, so that's important, because um, I'll, I'll admit, anger is something that I wrestle with. That would probably be one of my vices, would be anger, holding on to anger, venting anger in um, like less than, less than positive ways. Um, but I, I think part of being a peacemaker is about managing your anger. Um, it's not that we never get angry. Keep in mind that Jesus got angry. Jesus got furious at times. Um, but, but how is your anger impacting those around you? Are, you? are you venting your anger on other people? Are you walking around angry? Or do you have, have you set up constructive ways that you can deal with your anger? It could be something like signing up for, you know, uh, drumming. You, you, could be playing, you could be playing drums, actually. That's a good one for me. Yeah. You can tell when, I'm, when I haven't been playing drums for a while. It gets, it gets built up. I was, I was going more the line of like an MMA class or something like that, where you have an outlet to get out some of that, some of that energy in a, in a positive way. It's that's, an MMA class. Oh, mixed martial arts. Oh. Like signing up for like a karate class or like a tai chi class or something. Physical. Yeah. You're talking G- Getting out a punching bag and... Laying into the punching bag a little bit. We have to do that sometimes because right. we're human. And I think being, being a peacemaker is not about never getting angry and, you know, just having this complete inner peace where nothing ever phases you. People who are peacemakers have found outlets for their anger. They've, they deal with it in constructive ways. They go to therapy. Um, they have friends that they can talk to and get real about things. Yep. Yep. Um, so if we're not venting our anger, we're not going to be good peacemakers. That's, that's something I'd maybe say there. Two-minute warning. Two-minute warning. Oh and you know, you know who's got the questions? That would be me. Yeah. So. Oh, this is a good one. Oh, okay. One. Oh, yeah, that was my They're all good ones, but I like them. Was that your question, it too? It was. Okay. Look, I'm kissing up to my boss. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Jesus talked a lot about nonviolence, but isn't the idea of retribution also biblical, especially in the Old Testament? Good. Can you read that again? I just want to hear that again. Jesus talked about nonviolence, but isn't the idea of retribution also biblical, especially in the Old Testament? Okay. So the first thing I have to say is I think we give the Old Testament a bad rap. I'm always finding I have to stand up for the Old Testament because something you find in the church, you find this in all churches, you find this in a lot of Christian conversations is, why is God so angry, so vengeful, so wrathful in the Old Testament, and yet so loving, so gracious in the New Testament? And part of it is that there really does seem to be a contrast there. But one thing that I think a lot of Christians aren't aware of, about, or at least we don't have enough awareness, is that some of that distinction, some of the way Christians think about that, is rooted in some really dark stuff in our past that has to do with the church's relationship to, to the Jewish community. And there's like there's some kind of systemic anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism maybe that kind of colors Christians' views when we look at the Bible. So it's like, oh, the Old Testament, this is that angry, terrible God. Thank goodness we have Jesus and we fixed that. There's, there's some dark history there that I think we need to be aware, with, aware of with these kind of questions. Um, not that it's still a great question though. Um, I will say, so... The picture we get of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament are actually pretty complicated. Um, So in the Old Testament, you find uh, retributive justice. You find God destroying entire peoples to pay them back for some evil that they've done. You find God doing that to God's own people, which is a scary thought. Um, But you also find God being gracious 
God being loving, God being merciful. All the stuff Jesus talks about is rooted somewhere in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't make all this stuff up. He's drawing on his tradition. And then similarly, if we look at the New Testament, and then if we go forward from there to the history of the church, you find a very mixed picture of God. You know, yeah, you've got Jesus in the New Testament, very gracious, very loving, um, but you've got, you know, God strikes some people dead in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Um, you've got some really scary stuff in the book of Revelation. You've got some of that angry, vengeful God. Yeah, what we might call the Old the Testament old God, God, too. Um, so what I would say, and this might, be, this might be a little bit of a radical idea, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> the Old Testament was written over a very long time. The Old Testament was written over roughly about a thousand years. And you have debates that rage throughout the Old Testament. Um, you have debates over the, the, should there be a king in Israel? Some Old Testament authors say, yes, there should. We'd need a king. Other Old Testament books that you read, the kings are awful and terrible, and having a king was the worst thing Israel ever did. I think you find something similar with God. You find some competing visions of God in the Old Testament. And that's, that's scary to us because it's all inspired by God, so why would there be competing views? But this is actually how, like, most rabbis, most Jewish teachers read their text. And so Jesus, as a good rabbi, he provides a lens to his disciples. He, he gets up there and preaches, and he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes the Old Testament, and he says, but I say to you, and he says something different. He's giving his followers a lens that we're supposed, that I think we're supposed to be applying when we read the Old Testament, when we read the Bible, um, to kind of discern uh, basically, to find the God who looks like Jesus might be the way that I would put that. Okay. Um, so, so I would say when we read the Old Testament, we, Jesus should be our lens. Um, we sh and and that, would be, that would be the way that I would approach it. How does this make sense in light of Jesus? Has Jesus held up um, this teaching, this vision? Or is there some kind of a clash there? And if there's a clash, do I need to dig a little deeper? Do I need to do some research? Do I need to go to a small group and kind of hash this out with other people? Um, that would, that would be my approach. Uh, all that to say that, yes, there is retribu retributive justice in the Old Testament. I know time's up. Um, but Jesus still teaches peacemaking, and peacemaking should be our... Which is a perfect lives. segue into the next study series, which is going to be Genesis. Mm -hmm. And it's Genesis in a way, I promise you, we are not aware of. Yeah, we're going to start sermons on Genesis next week, and yeah. it's going to so, be fun. Because there's some scary stuff in Genesis. There's some death and violence and all kinds of stuff. So we'll be, we'll be covering some of that. I will say that he, for those of you who will care, he did compare it to Game of Thrones, yeah. which he's never seen. So that was kind of interesting. That's true. That's, I'm not actually thank watching you Game for your questions. Yeah, thank you for this. Thank you for your patience for this. You know, why don't I, why don't I pray? Because this doesn't, you know, it's not a, it's not a, right. it's not a well, sermon. Yeah, so let's, yeah, let's sure. just pray. That's, yeah. Um, God, I thank you for this church, Lord, and we thank you for this chance to ask questions and wrestle with different, uh, difficult questions, difficult issues. Um, we thank you for blessing our time uh, together this morning, Lord, and as we move into communion, um, we focus on you, God, and your love and your sacrifice for us. Um, thank you for just all the amazing ways you've blessed us, Lord, and for bringing us together for this community. Uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. 
You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.